Mark chapter 3. Let me read these first six verses and put that in your mind and then we'll walk through them together. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. He, that is Jesus, entered again into a synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, a paralyzed hand. They, the Pharisees, were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is that lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored, was healed. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. I've titled this sermon, The Road to the Cross Begins Here. In the economy of Mark's language, in the, the speed and rapidity that he gets to, to this point, he, he sets up from verse six onward the life and ministry that Jesus is about to live in the constant shadow of his own impending and predicted murder. The central symbol in the Christian life is no surprise to anyone. It's a Roman crucifix, commonly known as a cross, right? But it might surprise some of you, and not all of you, that that wasn't the earliest symbol for Christianity. You'll remember it was an ichthus, which is an acronym. It's the first letter of these uh, five Greek words that Jesus Christus, Theu, Huias, Soter, Jesus Christ, Son of God, and Savior. And if you put the first letter of all those together, it, it was a fish. And they would draw a fish as their symbol. Well, that began to wane in the second century, and the cross began to come to full prominence. Crosses are popular today. They're fashioned into jewelry. They're used as ornamental decorations. They're set up as grave markers. They're even used to keep vampires at bay in old black and white vampire movies. But very few in our culture stop to think, what does that symbol actually mean? Now, several years ago, I had an opportunity that was really special. I was invited to something. Uh, you'll remember Mel Gibson directed the, and released a movie about the last few hours of Jesus' life called The Passion of the Christ. Many of you have seen that. I was living in Los Angeles at the time of his release and ended up 
in a most unexpected meeting about the movie. It was a month or so before the movie came out and a group of pastors were invited to come and have a pre-screening of the movie and I uh, was able to go and be a part of this group. There were about 30 of us. We sat in, frankly, <laughs> the nicest movie theater I've ever been in in my life. And I'm not a frequenter of movie theaters, but I, I'm telling you, this was, I just wanted to sleep and enjoy myself. They brought us food. It was something I've never experienced before. Mel Gibson was supposed to come that day, but he had a meeting that went long and couldn't come and meet with us. About 30 of us sitting in this room, the film began and we watched it together. At the end, the lights came on and one of the big wigs in the company came out to the front of the theater and led a discussion with this group of pastors on what we thought about the movie. The accolades were effusive. Men were weeping. It was a stunning visual representation of the death of our Savior. Men were talking about this is how they were gonna use it. This is the best you know, 90 minutes I've spent in the last five years. I mean, they went on and on and on. There were men in tears. Others were speechless. Everyone chiming in on what was the momentum of that moment, which was overwhelmingly positive. And I was quiet and just kept hoping that the guy wouldn't ask me anything. I was conflicted. But then it happened. He walked right over to my side, looked me right in the face and said, had a name tag on. He said, Rick, what did you think? Well, I had to think it through for a moment. I had been thinking it through for a while. I told him the film was well done. I, it had deep impact on me in the moment, but, but I said, I, I have to confess, I have a concern. Every head in the room looked at the short guy in the front left corner. He said, what's your concern? And I, I just said simply that it was meaningful to me because I knew why Jesus died. But if someone who knew nothing or little about Jesus, if an alien came and sat in that movie, they would have one question, why are they so mean to this guy? What did he do to deserve this? And then I heard a display of postmodern theology like I'm not sure I've ever heard. These pastors began to sing, oh, oh, that's the genius of the movie because it means whatever you want it to mean for you. Let's just say I didn't leave with lots of friends that day. Have you ever noticed that the narratives about the cross and the four gospels are not that long? The majority of the four gospels are not about the cross. Oh, they climax and apex in the cross and the resurrection. But there's a lot of things that build up to the cross without which the cross would not make sense. It would be a sad story of a brutal murder of a nice guy. When you read from the book of Acts through the epistles, you find the cross extremely highlighted, explained, applied. Mark is gonna help lead us to the cross 
so that you and I know why it was that Jesus was executed. He doesn't begin with the cross narrative. He begins with other things and he's building us up to the cross. He will lead us there, but on the way he takes us through a route that might seem a little confusing, but makes perfect sense in how he's stitching these stories together so we understand by the time Jesus is nailed to that tree, why he was, what it meant. And the way he takes us there is at the waterhead of this passage. This is where it begins in Mark. Our passage this morning shows us the beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly life. The road to the cross begins here. The cross was no accident. It was not an unintended consequence. It was rooted in earthly reasons that we're gonna see this morning. It was rooted in divine reasons that Jesus will tell us about. It's detailed and it's not to confuse us, but to explain to us why these complicated features come together to understand. And you can understand how complicated the cross is by me asking you a simple question. Who killed Jesus? Who was responsible for the death of Jesus? And if you said the Romans, you would be right. And if you said the Jewish hierarchy, you would be right. If you would say the disciples for not sticking up for him, you would be right. If you said the sin of my own doing, you would be right. And if you said God crushed his own son, like Isaiah 53 says, you would be right. All of those come together, divine and earthly reasons in the perfect providence of God. The Lamb of God was slain in the mind and purpose of God when? Before he created the world. The death of Jesus was part of God's amazing and gracious provision for salvation. By the way, in Mark's gospel, Jesus will predict his death three times in chapter eight, verse 31, and chapter nine, verse 30, and in chapter 10, verses 32 and 34. He will say, I'm going to, man, going to Jerusalem. The son of man will go there. He will suffer it. He will be killed. He will rise on the third day. Well, beginning here in chapter two, if we went back a chapter, Mark begins to narrate and he stitches together five stories. We've looked at all four up to this fifth one this morning, five stories of conflict between Jesus and the Jewish authorities. In each of these stories, he brings the good news to alienated and needy people. And in each of these stories, his grace and compassion and kindness is met with resistance and hostility from men who should have known better. The Pharisees and the Jewish theologians called the scribes. Now remember, Mark quickly associated Jesus' ministry with that of John the Baptist back in chapter one, verse 14. And how he introduced us to John the Baptist is John the Baptist was arrested, taken away, put into custody. That was the first foreshadowing that Jesus preaching in the shadow of John the Baptist was not gonna be nominated for man of the year. The Jewish leadership would ensure that. If you want to look back over at chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody, 
Jesus came into Galilee. That is on purpose the way Mark says that. He sets it up because everyone, as we'll see in a few chapters, knew what happened to John. After John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the good news, the gospel of God, saying, the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. He came preaching the gospel, preaching the good news. His message conflicted though with the superstitious laws and regulations the Jewish leadership had added to the Mosaic law. It was more than Moses had said and sometimes less than Moses had said. And in the four stories that we've studied in the previous chapter and then up into this chapter, we see that he has so far, think about this, Jesus has been accused in chapter two, verse seven of being a blasphemer. In chapter two, verse 16, of fraternizing with sinners. In chapter two, verse 18, he's accused of violating the Jewish customs. And in chapter two, verse 24, he's accused of being a Sabbath breaker. And all of these accusations came from the leaders who should have known better. Our friend who's in glory right now, none of us knew, but we feel like we know him, J.C. Ryle makes this incredible observation so insightful. He says, Christ's people must not have expected to fare better than their master. They're always watched by an ill-natured and spiteful world. Their conduct is scanned with a keen and jealous eye. Their ways are noted and diligently observed. They are marked men. They can do nothing without the world noticing it. Speaking of us, their dress, their expenditures, their employment of time, their conduct, and all the regulations, all relations of life are all rigidly and closely remarked. Their adversaries wait for their halting, and if at any time they fall into an error, the ungodly rejoice. Ryle is looking at this and helping us know, helping us understand what do you do with a passage like we just read? And when you're looking at a narrative, let me give you a, a, a key to not only interpreting but implying a narrative. You're always looking for God's assessment of men and then relating that to you and me as sinners and also God's explanation and revelation of himself and his character and his nature. We see the sinfulness of man and the wonder of God in flesh in this passage under a divine spotlight. Let's unpack it together by discovering three disturbing steps towards divine treachery. Divine treachery is the only way to really grasp what happens at the end of verse six. Treachery against God, a plot to kill the Savior. Three disturbing steps towards divine treachery. Let's look first in verses one and two at the sinful setup. The sinful setup. Set up, verse one. Now, in order really to grasp verse one, you have to see what Mark did in the last verse of chapter two. Remember, he has, in the mind of the Pharisees, by eating and cracking grain and having a snack on the Sabbath, he's violated, he and his disciples have. After explanation, in verse 28, he says, the son of man, Jesus, is Lord even of the Sabbath, affirming his deity, affirming his lordship over every day, especially the seventh day. Right after that sentence, it says, he entered again into a synagogue and a man was there whose hand was withered. 
Verse two says that he enters on the Sabbath. Now, this is a healing story, but, but l- let me give you a little head start. This is not so much about the healing of this man, as wonderful as that is, as it is the conflict with these Pharisees. According to Luke chapter six, this is not the same Sabbath that he had broken in the eating. This is another Sabbath than the one we just left at the end of chapter two. And as was his custom, it was Sabbath. He made his way to the synagogue. I think he went there to worship and I think he went there to preach and to teach. Presumably, again, Capernaum. Again, he draws a crowd. From here on out, you're gonna notice that Jesus, every time he does something, unless he willfully backs away from the crowd, is always drawing a crowd. Sometimes in morbid curiosity and sometimes in wonder and worship. Now, some had good intentions for coming to synagogue that day. They wanted to hear this amazing teacher from Nazareth. The one who teaches with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Others, though, are coming to try to trap him set a vicious word trap so that if he steps into it, they could publicly discredit him and put all of the attention back on themselves. In verse one, we're introduced to a man with a desperate need for healing. Now, Mark doesn't tell us much about this man, simply that he has a withered, literally a paralyzed or a deformed hand. Luke tells us in Luke 6, 6, that this was his right hand, and that's significant that Luke, the physician, says it was his right hand. Most people being right-handed meant that this man was doubly disabled. Not only did he have a disabled hand, it was a culture in which you worked with your hands to work, and to have your dominant hand paralyzed was probably bad enough to reduce you to begging We're not told why his hand was paralyzed in any of the three accounts. Verse two, they, that's the Pharisees, were watching him, that is Jesus, to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. The heart of these wicked men is on full display. No concern expressed that this man has a need to be healed and Jesus can heal. They had their eyes fixed on him, ready to pounce. If he dared to, here it is, work on the Sabbath. They had reduced this, that if he heals, that's working. He's worked on the Sabbath in the synagogue. He's violated the Sabbath and is discredited. Just waiting. Some think, the text doesn't tell us, but some speculate, some commentators were saying that they probably brought this man with them. We don't know that. But this man is there with a paralyzed hand and Jesus is there with the power to heal paralyzed hands. Now, just let the words of verse two sink in fresh. We'll read it again. The Pharisees were watching Jesus to see if he would heal him. What a gracious thing that would have been. On the Sabbath, and their conclusion, if he had healed him, their premeditated conclusion would be that they could then bring an accusation against him that he was working on the Sabbath. 
They're waiting to see if he would heal this poor man so they could, get this, accuse him of healing this poor man. Wow. That's a sinful setup. And it's not just the Pharisees who were a part of the setup. You can bet every person at worship that day was watching both groups. Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees and their followers. That brings us secondly to the stinging confrontation. This is the bulk of this text. The stinging confrontation. Verse three begins that. There's no doubt, by the way, that Jesus knew exactly what the trap was that these Pharisees were setting. But before they could even set the trap, Jesus makes the first move. I'm amazed again at how unfazed and unintimidated he is in the face of opposition. Remember, at the end of chapter two, we, we hear Jesus assert, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And listen, on this day, he will show himself to be the Lord of this Sabbath. So, he gets ahead of the curve. Verse three, he said to the man with the withered hand, stop right there. He didn't wait. He sets it up. He initiates he says to him, get up and come forward. The force of this Greek word is really strong. He literally, said, literally says, get up and come to the prominent place. You could translate that, get up and come up the stairs in front of everyone or in the synagogue, get up and go to the middle of the room. Now you can only imagine this poor man. He doesn't know what's gonna happen. He's paralyzed. I'm sure he's been walking around in shame. And now Jesus, in front of this massive crowd, brings him to center stage. From verse five, we find out that the man obeyed what Jesus said. Our Lord is provoking the Pharisees. He wants the conflict. He's inviting it. He's controlling the situation. Luke actually tells us that he knew what they were thinking. Verse four. Then he says, notice the next phrase. He says, not to the man, he says to who? To them. So just wrap your sanctified imagination around this. Jesus is in command. He's standing. Everyone is listening to him. He tells the man to come in the middle or up front, place of prominence. And he's standing there. And then he turns and he looks right into the eyes of the Pharisees. The religious experts, the theologians, the men who had all the answers. And he says, hey, you men, Pharisees, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to take one, to kill? This is a stinging conflict. He picks the fight. The Pharisees were the one who claimed that they knew who it was who, were, who could violate the Sabbath and who kept the Sabbath. They were gatekeepers of what was lawful and permitted. They were gatekeepers of what was right and wrong. So Jesus asks them for their expert opinion in front of those who thought they were experts. 
He has a two-part question and each of these parts has two parts. And the answers to these were so obvious that a small child in the room could have answered easily. First part, he appeals to the Mosaic law of which they were supposed to be experts. He says, is it lawful? When he says, is it lawful? That's a direct reference not to their customs and superstitions. Is it lawful meant, was it ordained by Moses? Is it in the first five books of the Bible, of the law? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? He's asking this, is it right to do good on any ordinary day? And if you can do good on any ordinary day of the week, why would it not be right to do good for someone on the Sabbath? We talked about this for a moment last week, but remember what is the essence of the reason that God gave the Sabbath? Is it for worship and remembering the Creator? Yes, but it also had very specified horizontal dimensions. Exodus 20, remember, verse nine, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath of the Lord, your God. In it, you shall not do any work. That's what they were majoring on. You or your son or daughter or your male or female slave or your cattle or your children who stays with you. In other words, look out for the good of those around you. Be aware and sensitive to other people needing a day off just like you. For six days, the Lord In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it sanctified, holy. The whole purpose of the Sabbath was doing good to God and doing good to others. That's the essence that they not only should have known, it's the essence of the law of keeping the Sabbath they should have taught and participated and rejoiced in. Take your Bibles and turn over to Isaiah 58 for a minute. I want you to see this. They would have, well, I should have said this. They should have known this passage, talking about fasting and Sabbath keeping. And listen to the emphasis on doing good to others that Isaiah commented on or explained or theologized or applied about these celebrations. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6. Is this not the fast which I chose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bonds of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? These are all gracious provisions. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry? You're taking care of the needy. To bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? You're doing good to others. Then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You'll be surrounded behind and before. Then you will call and the Lord will answer and you will cry and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness and If you give yourself to the hungry, satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Do you hear this other's centeredness? Then your light will rise in darkness. Your gloom will become like midday. It reminds me of Philippians 2. You shine as a Christian like a light in the darkness. 
And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your, your desire in the scorched places and give strength to your bones and you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from whom... Uh, those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will rise up the age-old foundations. You will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which you dwell. If, because of the Sabbath, you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable and honor it, de desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word. In other words, you're taking care of others. Then you take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you at the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What is he saying? The Sabbath is supposed to be selfless. And if there's any day of the week that you do good, it ought to manifest itself on the Sabbath. In other words, God had commanded Israel to use the Sabbath for the very purpose that Jesus is doing, namely doing good, helping, serving. Yet these supposed experts in the law were finding fault with him for even the idea that he might do good for someone, namely heal a man's withered hand. He also says to save a life. Is it good to save a life on the Sabbath? Of course. I think it would be helpful to hear what Matthew records here that Mark chose to omit. Jesus provides an illustration that Jesus gave that Mark, for some reason, didn't see as a part of his argument. Matthew says, Jesus said to them, in Matthew 12, verses 11 and 12, what man is there among you who has a sheep and if it falls into a ditch, a pitch on the Sabbath, he will not take hold of it and lift it out. How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. The answer is of course it's good to save a life on the Sabbath. Of course it's good to do good on the Sabbath. That's what... Fourth grade Sunday school would answer that question rightly. But here's the point. In the first of these two couplets, both times he asked if it is good, if it's positive, but in the last half of each of these couplets, he says to do harm or to kill. Now, if you went to fourth grade Sunday school and you said, is it good to kill someone on the Sabbath? What do you think they would say? Is it good on the Sabbath to take someone's toys from them or reverse it? Is it good on the Sabbath for someone to come and hit you? <laughs> the answer is obvious. It's terrible not only on the Sabbath to do these things, it's terrible on any day to do these things. But here's the point of this whole narrative. Doing harm and plotting to kill was exactly what these Pharisees were doing that moment, that day, in that synagogue on the Sabbath. And you can bet they knew exactly to what he was alluding. How do I know that? 
Well, how would they respond? They were exposed. They were caught. So Mark tells us they kept silent. What would you say? How can you answer? You've been exposed. So verse 5 We see the heart of our Lord looking around at them with anger. At the same time, grieved at the hardness of their heart, he says to the man, stretch out your hand. Now, that's interesting because a withered or paralyzed hand can't be stretched out. So as he is reaching the hand out toward the healing Savior, it is immediately restored into perfect health. He stretched it out and it was restored. Jesus had the divine capacity and as the perfect man, the rightful emotions that for us might compete. Look at this text more carefully. He was angered and grieved over them at the same time. Now, if you understand the heart of God, that he can be both wrathful and loving at the same time. He can be the one who judges and saves at the same time. We see that these are two divine attributes operative in the life and heart of Jesus at the same time with the same people. In their silence, he was angry at them. They were hypocrites. They didn't have a single care about this man with a withered hand. He was just a pawn. They were haters of him. And they were about to be conspirators to murder. I think we can understand his divine and human anger at their sinfulness. At the same time, he was grieved, the text tells us, at the hardness of their heart. This is the same Savior who will, when he gets to Jerusalem, look over the city that's about to execute him and weep, weep that they haven't embraced him. You know, we say sometimes no one is all one thing. Aren't you glad God is not all one thing? What do I mean by that? Aren't you glad he's not all just wrathful and he's angry all the time? But if he was good all the time, then his justice would never come into into focus. He's all things perfectly at the same time without any conflict, without any variation. And can we just pull the car over? Remember when we said a minute ago that looking at these texts, we ought to see the men, which reflect our sinfulness and our needs, the humans in the passages. We ought to see the Savior and how wonderful he is and the attributes he demonstrates. We need to be very careful here then and have the compassion and grace of our own Lord, his rightful anger, he still doesn't lose sight of the need of these hypocrites for their own hearts to be softened and changed. Do you ever, have you ever, how often do you, maybe is a better way of asking it, do you look at sinners who are indeed worthy of hell and think, well, God and I are on the good side And they're on the bad side without remembering that we were once the objects of the same wrath with the same hard hearts. I'm amazed that he grieved 
over the hearts of men who in just a few verses are going to conspire to kill him. That all leads to verse six, our third disturbing setup, our step rather toward divine treachery and that's the sinister conspiracy. I, I, I shudder, I tremble when I come to this verse. The Pharisees went out. They were silenced. This man had a restored hand. And here's our word again that Mark likes immediately, instantaneously, responsively, reflexively. Began conspiring. This is unbelievable. You'll understand this in a minute. With the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Think about the irony here. The Jewish leaders, leaders are trying to deny Jesus the right to do good on the Sabbath, but somehow it's okay for them to conspire to kill him on the Sabbath. Can you say hypocrisy? Wow. This decision to destroy Jesus is more than a spat over healing. These leaders were upset that Jesus claimed the authority to poke holes in their oral tradition that had no bearing with the Mosaic law. In fact, sometimes they thought that their oral tradition superseded the Mosaic law. And here this miracle worker from Nazareth, just down the road, refused to play by their traditional rules, refused to play by their superstitious manipulations. Instead, Jesus operated in grace toward the sick Grace toward the disabled by healing them, remember chapter two, and forgiving sin, no matter what day of the week it was. I mean, can you think of what they were saying? That the reflection is that God takes the day off, so so should we. Does God ever take a day off? Oh, he rested on the Sabbath. But do you think that every Saturday, he just kind of flits off somewhere and Let's the world spin on its own? Of course not. It's ridiculous. In this episode, Jesus pushed these men to the breaking point. He bo broke their tradition. He confronted their authority. He confronted their care for the needy. He silenced their criticism and he threatened their power and their positions. Perhaps worst of all though, he now has humiliated them in front of the people they most wanted to impress at the synagogue. And this was their own doing. They got on the high dive. They dove off. They did the belly flop. He just allowed it to happen. They're the ones who wanted to set him up. Mark tells us that the Pharisees left the synagogue and conspired with the Herodians. A little historical footnote we have to take here. Who were these Herodians first? They're also mentioned in association with the Pharisees later in Mark chapter 12, verse 13. Just flip over there for a moment. I want you to see this and we'll obviously come back to this. In Mark chapter 12, verse 13, this is the week of Jesus' passion. This is the, after the triumphal entry, he's now in Jerusalem. In Mark chapter 12, verse 13, then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement, they dog him all the way to the final week of his life. They were ones who had Jesus' blood on their own clothes. 
Who were they? They were a political group. They weren't really a religious group. They, they weren't a, a, like a religious party or a religious sect like the Pharisees or Sadducees. The fact that the Pharisees, though, would co-conspire with them is remarkable and dramatic and most unlikely. They were called Herodians because they showed support for Herod, who was no friend to the Jewish occupants. He was more of a friend to the Romans. In this district, it would have been Herod Antipas, made up predominantly of the religious liberals, the Sadducees, and even leaders in the temple where there was incessant bribing going back and forth from Rome and Herod to these Herodians and bribes and conspiracies. Remember the setting. This is all happening up north in Galilee, 100 miles or so from Jerusalem. This would mean that their loyalty would, was to Herod Antipas, so in a country where most people chafed under Herod's rule, they were considered religious and political traitors. The Pharisees hated Rome. They hated Roman rule. And they did not get along with the Sadducees, whom they considered their theological enemies and liberals, traitors to the law. So these Sadducees and Herodians who were in the same political group came together with them. They found a common enemy in Jesus. He was a threat to both groups and he was wooing their followers to his teaching because of his authority and his power to heal and his grace to forgive. So, when Mark indicates that these two groups, the Herodians and the Pharisees, come together to entrap Jesus and then plot to murder him, he's telling us how much of a threat Jesus must really have been to them. This unlikely alliance will continue to follow Jesus, as I said, all the way to the final week of his life. The text says they conspired to destroy Jesus, literally to kill him, to wipe him out. This decision is the conclusion and climax of these conflicts, these five stories Marcus told us in Galilee. I mean, God sent his son to save sinners, including these religious leaders, and they turn and want to kill him. The Lord answered their question of what was permitted on the Sabbath, and he wanted to do good. They wanted to do harm and kill. Very simple. Now, as I said at the beginning, we, when we look at texts like this, we need to, following the admonition in Romans chapter 15 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we look for examples. Some of the examples are good and some of the examples are bad. When you look to a narrative, you say, that's followable, that's avoidable. We do that when we look at the players in this story, but we also look with an eye to the Savior, to God in flesh. What do we learn about him? So let's kind of back up. Jesus now begins to conduct his ministry in the shadow of the cross. How should we respond? Let me ask you a few questions. Do you ever come to worship with a critical eye toward others who are trying to do good. Oh, it's easy to throw stones at these, at these Pharisees. You ever come in the walls of this 
church or to your care group or to an activity and people who are trying to do the right thing and good, you find some reason in your heart to be critical of them. Listen, friends, we are not that dissimilar from these Pharisees. Too many times we look at Jesus' critics and enemies and forget that we share the same depraved heart that they had. They came to worship with a critical spirit. What attitude do you bring in your heart? Second question. This is harder. Do you see yourself and do you see in yourself an expertise that causes you to be judgmental of others while believing that you are righteous? And the answer to that for all of us is yes. Oh, we can so easily think that God and us are on the same team doing all the good and then all the unbelievers are on the outside looking in at us. We are sinners saved by grace who will fight our fleshly tendencies and leanings until we're glorified and see him face to face. Boy, this struck me. Are you compassionate and loving toward those with physical suffering? Are you compassionate and tenderhearted, loving to those with physical suffering? We have so many needs in our own body of people with physical suffering, whether it's short-term or long-term, whether it's serving them with chicken noodle soup while they have the flu or going to visit someone who's permanently disabled or helping people when they get older and their bodies are not what they were when they were 18. What's your heart toward them? Jesus walks in and instead of avoiding eye contact with someone who might make him feel uncomfortable, he deals with them. And I think those who love the Savior are those who demonstrate the most compassion to the most needy. I have a final question that's a two-parter that is most penetrating in my own heart. Instead of throwing rocks at these Pharisees, do you see your sin as a part of the cosmic conspiracy and reason for the death of Jesus? In other words, do you sense your personal part in divine treachery against God at the cross. Remember Luther's famous quote? Come to the cross, see Jesus about to be nailed there and look for the nails. And you will find those nails in your own pocket. As Jesus unearths and dismantles the self-righteousness of these men, Mark and Luke and John, they don't record these things just to show us how great Jesus is. They show us how great Jesus is against the black backdrop of the sins and sinners he came to offer forgiveness 
Boy, where, where are the nails for the cross? They're in our pockets. Everything changes here. Now, Jesus knows when he teaches, there are critics. When he heals, there are critics. When he debates, they try to trap him. And everything from here forward is done marching toward in the shadow of his own instrument of execution, the cross. Wow. This passage exposes our need for the Savior. We often talk, sometimes in the middle, sometimes at the end of the service, about if you don't know Christ, and certainly if you are not a Christian, you should hear the calling, wooing, love, and grace of the Savior in this passage. But could you just stop? And if you're a long-term church grower, do you see more of Jesus from this passage in you or more of the pharisaical attitudes of these critics in your heart? Listen, full disclosure and full confession. You just had 45 minutes with this text. I have been waylaid by this text all week and seen such gross expressions of my own self-righteousness. I'm embarrassed about it, ashamed of. But we have a God in human flesh who grieves over the hardness of heart and is the only one who can soften it and offer salvation to those who would believe. It could be you've been in church for a long time and you have heard and known, but you've never submitted your life completely to his oversight and lordship. Can I just ask you to stop and pause and look deeply in the mirror of your soul and say, do I know, do I really know the Savior? Is he really the Lord of all seven days of my week? Have I experienced his tender mercy, his wonderful forgiveness, his loving gaze? He stands arms wide open to receive anyone, anyone, no matter what you've done, to become a child because of belief.